Let's go ahead and read our text. Genesis chapter number six. We're going to start reading in verse number 12. Dave covered verses one through 11. We'll pick up reading verse number 12 and read through the end of the chapter. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be made male and female. Verse 20, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The title of our message this morning is Total Obedience Despite Total Depravity. Total Obedience Despite Total Depravity. Growing up, I always appreciated a good contrast. Right? Can you guys appreciate a good contrast? There was something just in how my mind thinks, how it works, and how it connects things. When there was a contrast, it helped me understand really the point of a text it helped me understand what was going on in a life situation, and it helped me find a path forward, right? So I want you to think back to some of those classic contrasts, maybe not even necessarily biblical right now, but what were some of those fun classical contrasts that we grew up hearing about even as a child, right? You've got the superheroes and the, and the villains. Yeah, that's right. We've got the boys, all of us guys here at some point, we played the cops and the, the robbers, Right? We, we've got a contrast. We know the superhero and the villain. We know the difference between those two by how they relate to each other, right? Cops and the robbers, the same thing. We clearly know the good guys and the bad guys and what side we want to be on as a result of how they relate to each other. We've seen this all throughout our lives, and we certainly, all of us have been a child at some point. And so whether you're a kid here right now and you're having going to have some flashbacks or whether you're an adult and you just can reflect back and remember this. We all remember those lectures with mom and dad, right? And moms and dads, probably dads more so than moms, are really good at making some classic contrasting statements in the point of a lecture, right? It was all about son or daughter, you need to make good choices instead of bad choices, right? You need to go down the right path instead of the the wrong path. There's a contrast and it helps us understand the meaning and the direction of the instruction that is to follow. And 
All throughout Scripture, we see these, these contrasts that, that are made, right? And God, through the inspiration of Scripture, directed these human authors to deploy this helpful literary to, tool throughout Scripture. We observe the contrast in Scripture even of right and wrong. In the Gospel of John, a series we went through fairly recently, we saw a contrast of what light and and darkness, blessing and cursing, putting off and putting on. We see in the Proverbs and the wisdom literature, we see the contrast of wisdom and folly. All through the epistles and the gospels, we see Christ pointing our attention to the temporal and the eternal, obedience and disobedience, right? When we look at scripture, this contrasting theme is often deployed to help us understand the meaning. The list literally could go on and on. As we look into scripture, this is, again, is helpful in, in our understanding of the Lord's meaning of a text. And we see this structure in chapter number six. In verse number 12, let's read that verse. It says what? And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We see this total depravity in chapter number six, stand in stark contrast with the last verse of chapter number six, which is 22, says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. As we even look back to the verses that uh, Dave covered last week in verse number nine, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a, what, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So we see this this stark contrast to this total depravity of the majority of the earth standing against the obedience and the righteousness of, of Noah. So I know I did this last time I preached. I gave us a tip before we actually dove into the text, and I want to do that one more time this morning. And I do that by way of just helping us, again, understand how we are to approach Scripture and how we should read it in a more accurate and, and literal way. So uh, humor me, if, if you will, just for a few moments by way of pointing our attention to a common fallacy that many of us fall into when we approach narrative, right? And a narrative is just what? What is narrative in Scripture? It's just a story, right? It's a section of Scripture that tells a series of events. And many times when we approach a narrative, there's always kind of the main character or the protagonist, Right? And that person or that narrative, that main character stands in contrast to the antagonist of the story, or we could call him the villain, I guess, right? And so we've got this storyline of events. We've got a protagonist, an antagonist. Uh, you didn't really want to come and learn an English lesson this morning, I realize, but stay with me. I'm building a point here, right? Many times when we look through this narrative or this story, the application or the takeaway is what? Be like the main character. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever heard this or seen this come up in Old Testament narrative, right? We see these examples come up in Scripture. It's David and Goliath. And so the takeaway of David and Goliath is what? Just be a David and slay the giants in your life, right? We've got other ones such as Joseph and his brothers, and you've probably heard all kind of pithy titles into the narrative of Joseph's life and how to be a, how to be a Joseph. We've got 
Uh, others, Daniel, and he's fighting against the influence of this Babylonian culture. And so, have you heard this one before? Dare to be a, a Daniel. And if we're not careful, as we approach Scripture in Old Testament, I was reminded even this last weekend when we were going through the book of Ruth at the teen study, one of the speakers talked about the Bible isn't about us. The Bible isn't about me. It's not about what I can gain from this relationship with God or what He wants for me or desires for me. This story of the Bible and my role in it is simply what? To point others back to the one who saved me. It's all about the glory of God. And so Scripture is not about me. We don't want to come away from Genesis number six, chapter number 6 and say, just be a Noah. Just obey more. Just be more righteous in your generation. These are not the takeaways that we have for us here in Genesis chapter number 6 because although we're going to see Noah in this story, we're certainly going to be, see him only used by God to bring about his plan, his purposes, and his will. Noah's simply what? He was simply clay in the potter's hand. He brought nothing to the table. So it was a story all about God's grace in the life of Noah. While we certainly will talk about Noah, his character, and his obedience, Noah is not the hero of the story. <clears throat> Noah is not the hero of the story. God is, and he always will be the hero, not only of Genesis, but of all Scripture. <clears throat> and takeaway should not be Noah was good, but rather it should be God is gracious. If we're not careful, we can and will make some very inaccurate interpretations and conclusions about God and about how he relates to people if we don't keep these proper interpretations and approaches to Scripture in mind as we read through Scripture. So this morning, I trust as we continue to work our way through this text in the study in Genesis, we will remember that our stated goal from the very beginning is to see and discover God's redemptive plan of salvation through the personal work of Jesus unfold in the pages of this inspired text. So that introduction brings us to our big idea this morning. The big idea of our text. Thank you, sweetie. Appreciate it. Thanks, Maddie. Coffee apparently wasn't doing the trick. <clears throat> So the big idea of our text this morning is this. Because of who God is, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation. I do believe that. As we've seen Genesis unfold, chapter 1, now through chapter 6, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may seem to have strayed. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. I'm going to read that one more time. I want you to internalize this and anchor your heart around this truth as we look through this text. Because of who God is, that is his, his character. He can only operate in certain ways. Because of his character, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may have strayed. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. So this morning, we're going to let the text guide us through our sermon we're just going to make two simple points. The first point is this. God always deals with sin in a manner that is consistent with his character. 
God always deals with sin in a manner that is consistent with his character. Let's look at verses 12 through 14 once again. And God saw the earth and behold, it was described as what? What's the word there? Corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with what? Violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Do we remember back to the creation account, God's desire to be in relationship with his people? God is no distant, ambiguous, higher being. He is an involved creator who desires to be in intimate relationship and fellowship with his creation. Right? So all the way back in Genesis 1 through 3, we reminded at length that God made Adam differently than the other creatures on the earth. He made Adam and Eve how? In the image and likeness of himself. He saw as he created Adam that it was not good for Adam to be alone. So what did he do? He created Eve. He caused a deep sleep to come over Eve. He took a rib out of Adam and he formed and fashioned Eve. And they called her woman because why? She came out of, out of man. So we have Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect, close, unhindered fellowship and relationship with God, the creator of the whole entire universe. Incredible, right? You guys remember this. We saw that storyline take a quick twist as God left them with just one command as his creation. He said, I've given you all the garden. I've given you all of creation. Take, eat, enjoy, have pleasure in this garden between yourselves and with me, your creator. But there's one thing you can't do. Don't eat the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story as we've gone through it that Adam and Eve failed. They, they sinned. They broke God's law. And as a result, what happened? They were confronted with that sin. And there were consequences of that sin. They were cast out of the garden as a result of their sin. So God announces these consequences. He fulfills these consequences, not only because he is God and he can say, because I said so, but he also instills consequences for our sin. Why? Because it's consistent with his character. He is God. And so therefore, there must be consequences if those commands and those laws are what? Are they broken? So because of who God is, he cannot be in relationship with his creation in the presence of sin, right? God is described as holy, meaning he is without sin. He is set apart from sin. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 tells us, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He is just, meaning he behaves in accordance to what is morally right. So God is holy and God is just, right? That means that he operates in a sense of morality, of right and wrong. 
Many times in our struggle with understanding these difficult circumstances of a global flood that will wipe out a majority of the race of mankind and all living creatures, we grapple with how can that be in the same sentence of a good and gracious and loving and merciful God? Have you ever been challenged with that question? Have you ever grappled that with yourself of how can God cast these consequences down, but yet in the same sense be loving and gracious and merciful? These certainly are different aspects of God, but they certainly are not in contrast with each other. They can be cohesive in the same person because he is holy, he is just, and as we'll see later in this chapter, he certainly is gracious in the midst of his holy, just, and righteous character. Many times our disconnect with God's actions are viewed through the lens of what? our understanding and definition of morality. The fallacy there is that we are described as finite in our understanding. We are a created being, and we are trying to align our understanding in our way and our knowledge understanding against that of an infinite being, the Creator. So not only does God operate in accordance to what is morally right, He is morality. God is the definition of morality because He is the Creator. He alone is perfect. He alone is good. He alone is right, for He is He is truth. All other sources are what? They're flawed. They're man-made. They're incomplete and ultimately many times self-serving in some way. To appeal to my own desires, to my wants, and my definition of what I think is right or wrong in this earth. And therefore, there is a disconnect when we approach God and His actions against our understanding of morality. So because He is all of these things, as revealed in Scripture, He alone has the right to place judgment on the actions and hearts of mankind. So this first point is God always deals with sin in a manner that's consistent with his character and his character, character traits that demand consequences and action against the sinfulness and the disobedience of mankind are his holiness and his justice. Romans 9 verse number 20 says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to the, it's molder, why have you made me like this? Can you resonate with the tone of that verse? Have you ever grappled with similar questions? But at the end of the day, who am I? Who am I in my finite understanding of, of God, speaking to the creator of all things, the one who was and is and will be? Who am I to shake a fist and cast a question mark on the actions and the hand of the Lord. Isaiah 59, 1-3 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. I love these passages of Scripture that just kind of cut to the fluff of what we think about ourselves. Right? Do I really view my sinfulness and my heart in that way? 
Do I understand that my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and therefore, who can know it? The answer to that rhetorical question is you can't. That's how sinful and wicked we are in our total depravity. As David laid out last week, that that the sinfulness of mankind have waxed worse and worse, and they're doing all kinds of wickedness according to their own way. They became the definition of their happiness. They became the definition of their joy. And whatever they thought was going to bring them happiness, guess what they did? They did that, despite what God had to say about it. This is a universal and timeless truth, but yet a very elementary truth at the same time. Sin, breaking God's law always has what? Consequences. Kids, have you ever heard your parents say that before? If you disobey me, If you do what I'm telling you not to do, guess what? There's going to be consequences. This is universal truth. It's timeless, and it's so elementary that us as parents, at the youngest of ages, we're teaching our kids this reality. And it's not just about a parent-child relationship. It's about a creator-creation relationship. It's about a God and His people type of relationship. Sin. Breaking God's law, breaking God's commandment, going against His word, it always has consequences. And those consequences are real. I mean, so real here. Do you see the the, the just incredible consequences that are going to come on the human race as a result of them just living for themselves? Those consequences are real. Why? Because God's character is real. Guys, when we talk about his holiness, and we talk about God is just, and we talk about the reality that he is righteous, many times, although we speak to them rightly on a doctrinal statement, we don't live in the reality that those are, those are real things. Sometimes we talk about God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice as if there's some ambiguous terms that just we have to talk about because they're present in, in Scripture. But hey, you know what? When it comes to actually living them out, surely God's grace is more prevalent. Love will always win. And no, wait a second. All of his character traits in Scripture as they're spoken to in his word are real. And God can do nothing else but exercise within his character and act within the bounds of his character. So the consequences are real because his character is real. He is really, friends, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He really is Yahweh. He really is the Elohim. He really is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is to come. He is God and his words are truth. They are right and they are good because why? He is God. So we have to anchor our our hearts and our understanding of the word of God on that reality that he alone is God. I am not. Romans 1 speaks to this. He alone is God. I am not. He has spoken. His word is final. There is an absolute truth. Truth is not relative. There is only one way, one truth, and one life, and it's through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is a very unpopular message in in our day. I get it. But it's a message that as Liberty Hills Bible Church, we have to preach and we have to teach and we have to stand on that truth because it is who God is. So God observes 
in chapter, in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, the state of mankind on the earth. And he says, behold, they are corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their way. Verse 13, it goes on to say that the earth is filled with violence. This is an interesting nuance that under inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit uh, allowed the author here to, to bring our mind and attention to not only were just they corrupt and falling after their own way, but it had developed into what? A, a level of violence. This, this is a place where uh, wickedness and sin and there is a total depravity described here. And this violence is through them. It is being exercised. It is being lived out on this earth through God's image bearers that he created in, in his image and likeness. Can, can you understand the pain and the hurt and, and the, the torment that, that God may be going through? Because remember, he created these human beings to be in what relationship with him? He desires to know them. He desires to be their God and for them to be his people. But here they are. They have grown worse and worse in their sin and they have been described as corrupt and this violence is being fulfilled on the earth through them. God's response then is consistent with his character and his own just and righteous way. He concludes that verse 13, he will make an end of all flesh. Dave, in the previous verses, worked through this same reality. It goes on and said, he will destroy them with the earth. This is God's response to the wickedness of mankind. Can we not come to any other conclusion that God takes very seriously sin? God takes very seriously sin. Why? Because of his character. It all comes back to who God is, his person, his work, who he is. So let's anchor us back on our big idea and we're going to transition into our second and final point this morning. So our big idea, again, is because of who God is, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may seem to stray. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. So we've kind of given all the bad news here in chapter number six. We've seen that ultimately the entire human race has been described as corrupt and there's violence being deployed through them. But now we're going to transition to understand this second point. Not only does God deal with sin in a manner consistent with his character, but secondly, God's plan is always sustained with grace in a manner consistent with his character. God's plan is always sustained with grace in a manner consistent with his character. We're going to see this reality in verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse number 22. We can observe a number of different aspects to this plan that's described in these section of verses here. This plan of deliverance that God communicates to Noah, but above all, this plan is sustained with and by and through grace. Grace is a word that we talk about often in our Christian culture, is it not? Andy talked about that this morning. He talked about grace. We sing songs about grace. We see devotionals about grace. We have t-shirts with grace printed on them. We talk a lot about grace, but what is ultimately grace? It's God's unmerited favor. It's God giving us something that we don't deserve. Now kids, 
Listen up here. Have you ever experienced grace from your mom and your dad? Unmerited favor, getting something you didn't deserve at that time. Now, you may say as a kid, no way. It's just, it run a tight ship. It's just consequences, consequences. No, hopefully at some point in your lifetime, you're going to be able to experience some grace, right? You disobeyed, but instead of quick, swift consequences for those actions, instead of getting consequences, what do you get? You get mercy. You get grace. You get something that you didn't deserve. What you deserved was consequences that they laid out. But they give you a, what, another opportunity to learn and to grow and to understand what it means to obey mom and dad when they give you uh, something to do. They give you grace. They deploy mercy. Mercy is what? Not getting something that you do deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. So they withhold the consequence, that's mercy, and they deploy grace, and they may even give you an opportunity to spend some one-on-one time with them, to go and get a treat or a snack or take a ride and, and talk about the choice that you made or talk about the decision that was made and how you can do that differently next time. Adults here, have you ever been on the receiving end of, of grace? You remember thinking back with your parents that way? One. Pam, thank you. Pam's the only one that's received. Pam's the only one that her parents gave him some grace. Now, you guys know what I'm talking about. I'm just making sure you're with me and following this train of thought. This is, this is how we want to view this next section of Scripture, that it is absolutely paved with the way of grace, that always, although we see some swift and severe and total consequences that God is going to deploy against mankind as a result of their sin, we also see that God is not done with mankind. He's not giving up hope for them. He is showing them grace. He's making a way through Noah. He's preserving that line. Remember that we walked through in chapter 5 with that genealogy. And it is ending with the promised Messiah who has given us all the hope in the world. So God's plan is always sustained with grace in a manner consistent with his character. I loved, I didn't have, obviously, again, I didn't have the opportunity to hear David's sermon last week. Um, I, I think our recording messed up. So we're going to, I think Dave's going to preach it to his family at some point this week again, just so we can record it. So family, that's what you have to look forward to this week. Get to hear about the Nephilim again. Uh, I know you were thrilled about that, but no, I, I read the notes though, Dave, and there was a statement that Dave brought out last week as we were collectively working through that very difficult passage and, and Dave bringing home this message of grace to end um, these very difficult situations that are scribed there at the beginning of chapter number six. So there was this this point in, in the first 11 verses, but I loved reading again this note. His, his comment was this. He says this, his plan cannot be thwarted by our actions. His love cannot be extinguished by his justice. His grace is greater than all our sins. Let me read that one more time. This was Dave's concluding thought on those first 11 verses. 
Dave said his plan cannot be thwarted by our actions. No matter how far our sin may take us away, no matter how evil and wicked and totally depraved our mind and our heart and our ways and our actions, violence through our own hands, his plan cannot be thwarted by our actions. His love cannot be extinguished by his justice in harmony with each other. His grace is greater than all our sin. Can you say amen to that? Thanks, Dave, for anchoring our hearts on that reality last week. So what other observations can we make concerning this plan? Not only is it sustained with grace, but let's state the obvious one. Noah cannot do this on his own. Noah can't do this on his own. He needs what? He needs some grace in his life. Because this plan that God is about to unfold for Noah, I, I can't imagine having this conversation with the Lord. I mean, God is giving Noah some very bad news. Your entire human race that you know, because of their wickedness, there's consequences of sin because I'm holy and just. And we're going to wipe them out. They've grown so wicked and corrupt and evil. But he's going to share a lot of details here that are about to come. So remember, although Noah is described as a righteous man and blameless in his generation, in verse 9, he is still flesh and bones. He is not God. He is not Jesus. He is still with what? Sin. He is still with sin. I want to be clear here that Noah's way of escape was not predicated upon his goodness, but rather it was God's favor on Noah that we saw last week. This was not a responsive plan that God put in place because of something that Noah earned or did. Noah could not, in and of himself, write the script to this story. He needed the Lord to deliver him and his family, and he needed the Lord's guidance Every step of the way. Noah could not do this on his own. Next aspect of God's plan that is sustained by grace is this, that the plan was a detailed one. This is kind of obvious as well, but again, I'm just going to make the point here in the text that there's a lot of details here that the Lord gives Noah, are there not? All right, let's look at our text, let's, for, verses 14 through 16. It goes on, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now that's an interesting choice of material. Many people don't say we don't really know what that is. That's not a, um, necessarily a, a tree or a lumber that even still exists in our day. Um, we don't have a profile of, of gopher wood. It's an interesting material, um, if you spend any time with Jonathan Sherwood at all, you know that he loves woodworking. Um, and so maybe Jonathan has some insights on some gopher wood aspect for us. Any comments? No? Okay, that's what I thought. I was just going to put you on the spot just in case. But gopher wood, right, is the material that he chose in verse number 14. He goes on to say, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. It's breadth 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. 
Make it with lower second and third decks. This is a lot of detail that the Lord is, is given Noah here. So we see God in his providential plan providing everything that Noah needs to complete this task that the Lord is laying before him. We see the materials he is to use. The dimensions of the ark are described in detail in, in verse number 15. And just by way of translating cubits to our American measurements, this would roughly in the ballpark be about 500 to 510 feet long. Some say up as small as 450 to 510. About 85 feet wide, and about 50 to 55 feet high. These details also go on to describe the design, both inside and out, making rooms and how to cover it in the pitch and the, how many floors and even the placement of the door. God has spared nothing in providing a way of escape for Noah and his family. It's a good plan. It's the only plan. Why? Because it is, it's God's plan. Noah did not come up with this, his own. He needs the help of the Lord. It's sustained by grace. It was a detailed plan. The next aspect that we'll point out about this plan is this, that it's a supernatural plan. Verses 17 to 21, God goes on to describe not just the physical and material aspects of the ark, but he describes in great detail the inhabitants of the ark, both humans and animals. In verse 18, he starts with laying out who will be allowed to board the ark from the human race. And there's no question left here. It's who? It's Noah. It's his wife, his sons. It's their wives. And... That description is the easy one. He then, he then transitions to what? He transitions to the animals that will be included in this ark to escape this global flood. So this is a supernatural plan. Now, I'll state this, and Dave actually teed this up great last week, that many times we can get fixated or enamored with certain aspects of a story to our own detriment of actually missing the actual point of the story, right? Last week in the first 11 verses, the point of the story was not about the Nephilim, right? The point of the story in the remainder of chapter number six is, not understanding how many animals were actually on the ark, right? I mean, is it good to talk about that? Can we speculate? Can we study it and maybe get some good understanding? Absolutely. And we're going to give some thoughts on that, but I just want to point that out. This isn't the point of the remainder of chapter number six, right? So let's remember that this is about God being consistent and delivering consequences with his character. It's about God sustaining his plan with grace in a manner consistent with his character. These are our takeaways. So as we look at this text here that describes the animals that were to be involved in boarding the ark, we really want to focus in on this word sort as the ESV translates it. Look at verse number 19. Verse number 19 says this, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Both the ESV and the KJV use the word sort here. The NASB translates this word two of every kind. Uses the word kind. I like the translation probably because it's, it's probably most aligned with a proper understanding 
um, of our modern scientific understanding, right? Sort, it's kind of ambiguous. When we talk about kinds, it helps us narrow our focus and understanding of what God may have intended here as far as how many animals would be involved in that definition of sort and kind. The word in the original has been used to describe a category of people with a common feature. The common feature. More specifically, it can also be defined in Scripture towards a class or a type of people or things having what similar characteristics. So again, this leads us to that age-old question, how many animals were loaded into the ark? So with some help from, with our friends over at Answers in Genesis and other trusted resources, I'm going to help give us an understanding of this word kind and how that relates to the quantity of animals. So the first question that we have to answer is, what does the word kind referring to? Now, when we connect this to our modern classification understanding, many people try to create a connection between kind and the word species, right? Species in our understanding of how animals are classified is a much, much broader term, isn't easily actually defined even in the scientific community. It represents a large, large quantity of variations, that would have needed to be included to fulfill this requirement if kind meant species, right? So hang with me here. So it does not mean species. Kind and species are not the same as we understand it biblically. A species, that's simply a man-made term used in our modern classification system. In contrast, the Bible's word of kind, we see it first used, the Hebrew word is just min, M-I-N is found in Genesis 1 when God creates plants and animals according to what? Their, their kinds. It's used again in our text here this morning, and it's also used in chapter number 8. And just a simple, plain, literal reading of the text infers that plants and animals were created to reproduce within the boundaries and the limitations of their kind. Okay, so evidence to support this concept, it's clearly seen in our day as we see animals in a normative way reproducing within their kind. So help us understand and narrow the scope of the animals that would be involved here. It's a good rule of thumb here is that if two animals can breed together, then they are of the same created kind. And I'm going to stop there and make the obvious statement. There's a lot more that could be said there. There's full conferences and books, and hundreds and thousands of pages that are written just on this portion right here. So I'm going to leave it at that very basic and somewhat elementary understanding of this, that if two animals can breed together, then they are of the same created kind. An example of this, let's give you a couple of dogs, right? There's all kinds of variations of dogs. You've got wolves, you've got dingoes, you've got coyotes, you've got domestic dogs, when dogs breed together, you get more you get more dogs. Thank you, right? Chickens are the same way. There's lots of different birds, but chickens breed with chickens, and when that happens, you get more you get more chickens. So there's there's a kind. There's a limited focus, some guide rails there that help us understand the scope of the animals that would have been included on the ark. Okay. So what does it look like now for these kinds of animals to now be 
in the ark, what animals were present. There's some limiting descriptions here in our verse, but also as we look forward next week, as I'll be covering chapter number seven, verse number 15 says, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. So the Bible gives us a clarifying statement that the animals that would have been included in this were what? Those that had the breath of life. This would have excluded, obviously, fish, other sea creatures. Some even speculate that this could have excluded even insects and other invertebrates. With that said, all right, I'll give you some numbers here. There are recent studies of what we understand this word kind to be and its size and scope and how it relates to our understanding of the animal kingdom. We roughly believe that there are probably about 1,500 flying creatures and extinct kinds that we can trace back that would have led to approximately 7,000 animals that Noah would have carried on the ark. 7,000 animals representing 1,500 kinds. So I, I gave us somewhat of a, a broken scientific explanation of this, but what's our takeaway from this supernatural understanding of God giving this detailed plan of not only who would be involved, but what of the animals would be involved in boarding this ark? What's our takeaway? What, what does this mean for me today? I certainly know you didn't come for a science lesson. I want to bring this home. I want you to understand what it means for me, my understanding of God and how I relate to him. My takeaway is this. It should be, this plan is no doubt a providential and supernatural one that God alone is the author of. I should be overwhelmed and amazed at the sovereign providential plan of God and being able to pull these details together to sustain the human race and life of all living creatures that would be used to sustain the growth and the prosperity of mankind to come and future generations. So finally, let's look at Noah's response in verse number 22. What was Noah's response? Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Wow. I'm sitting in Noah's shoes. I'm scratching my head. I'm in some nervous sweats. I'm thinking, how in the world is this going to come about? I'm fearful. I'm sorrowful. I'm understanding the, the heaviness of what God has just communicated. But what is the testimony of Noah in this? Noah simply did this. He did all that the Lord had commanded. Wow. Noah simply obeyed God. Noah trusted God to provide, to sustain, and to bring this plan through to completion. Noah knew and anchored his heart and his mind. I'm sure despite his own negative human emotions, he anchored his heart. He knew that God was able. We sang about that reality this morning. So friends, some points of application. How do we respond to God's plans for our life when the circumstances seem impossible to bear? When the ask seems just too much? When the task ahead seems far beyond what we believe we are able to accomplish. Feelings of fear, anxiety, inadequacy start to set in. Have you ever been there? 
God's taking you down a path that you didn't want or you didn't expect. And the questions and uncertainty of all that were just swirling through your mind. Friends, I want to be careful not to spiritualize the end of this text here too much. But we do see in in Noah, in this ark, and the consequences of sin and deliverance and escape from those consequences, we do see in this text a foreshadowing of a future deliverance of impending destruction that is to our benefit. A deliverance that will come from a true and better Adam, one who did not fail, but rather was perfect and fulfilled the law's demands in every single point. And the law's demands were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross because he shed his blood. He gave his life. He was laid in a tomb. And it was there he went on to war on our behalf, and he defeated sin, death, and hell so that our relationship with God that was broken because of sin could be restored because of that beautiful work of Jesus Christ, could be restored as he intended, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Perfect, unhindered, unbridled fellowship with his sons and daughters. This is the message of grace that is sustained in the midst of total depravity. Incredible consequences are faced, but God is there. He is working and he is making a way. Finish with our big idea. Because of who God is, he will always make a way to be in relationship with his creation, no matter how far they may seem to stray. For by his grace, he is making a way and redeeming a remnant. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God. You are on your throne and that you love us, you care for us. Father, I pray that we would just be overwhelmed this morning with your mercy. Although our sins be many, your mercy is more. We thank you that you made a covenant with Noah that we'll even see in chapter seven and eight, that although you had to exercise your just and holy judgment against mankind, you promised that you would never do that again. And through sustaining that seed, that line of the Messiah through Noah, you've made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be grafted into your family, to be your son and your daughter, to be ushered out of darkness into light, to be called your son, your daughter. What a beautiful reality that is. So Father, I pray that you would bring these things home even in our application time. Be with our children's hour that you would see, cause them to see you, to see Christ and to see the gospel. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.